It is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a camera and a cemetery. The cemeteries that are here are just so close, and I like taking the photographs. So it's just something to, to occupy my time and, and just enjoy having fun doing it. Plus, a podcast that aims to take sports seriously. I mean, I've, I've, I've thought this for a long time. I think podcasts are the best place to be uncertain, right? And it's just like, you can do something in in audio that is much harder in the written word, right? You write something, it has a period at the end of it, and it just lives there forever, and it feels definitive. And author Britt Bennett discusses writing, storytelling, and identity. Identity is always something that is uh, kind of a factor in in what I'm writing, what I think about the world. The, the, The complication in the way that I see myself versus the way my family sees me versus my friends versus stranger. First, the news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites art enthusiasts to register for Printmaking with Paige Dirksen, an eight-week workshop designed for folks age 55-plus who wish to learn about different forms of printmaking and hone their skills creating unique prints. Classes take place Mondays, January 22nd through March 11th. Information and tickets at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday. Ahead on the show, a podcast about sports that isn't about the scoreboard or the play calling. Jody Abergan discusses what it looks like to create a podcast about sports that includes table tennis, ultimate frisbee, and more. That's in our second half hour. First, though, although it may not always feel this way, The internet has probably been a net gain for humanity. Some elements of the recent past are much easier to trace thanks to the work of ever-expanding websites and cloud storage. I personally experienced this recently, searching for information about my maternal grandfather. He died in 1948 when my mother was just a few months old. In an effort to find more information about him, I came across findagrave.com, a website aptly named. With a few search terms, you can find data and photos of nearly every grave in the United States, posted largely by a group of volunteers. One of those volunteers is Jim Harder. Born in Cynthiana, Kentucky and grew up in nearby Winchester, Kentucky, near Lexington. Jim has added more than 9,000 photos to find a grave since joining the website over 12 years ago. Well, I've been taking photos, well, since uh, primarily after college. I did seven years in the Navy and did uh, some photography as as well as that. Flew off a carrier. I was a naval aviator and was one, maybe the only person to have three naval aviator wings Mm. uh, due to circumstances as as the time I went into uh, into the Navy. And uh, for moviegoers, my last flight in the Navy was with Commander Dan Peterson, who was the person who started the Top Gun program. Jim says his photography work picked up after his time in the Navy when he began working for the FBI in 1971 as both a pilot and an investigative agent. During his time in the FBI, he worked on cases like the Waco compound of the religious cult Branch Davidians in the early 90s. As an investigative agent, photographs are a big part of the investigation. Yeah. So I was always taking photographs. 
And you were also um, you were also in the FBI during the Oklahoma City bombing yes, as well. Yes, uh, I was in the Kansas City office, and everything except the bombing itself occurred in Kansas. Terry Nichols and Mc, McVeigh uh, were in the uh, Fort Riley area, uh, Harrington, Kansas. That's where Nichols lived. And the picture of me uh, that I sent you, well, I was at the at the little like a storage little facility. Storage facility where they stored the uh, the ingredients to make the bomb. Hmm. And of course, the, then the bomb occurred, and the FBI spent just weeks and hours. Uh, one of the most exhaust—it's one of the most exhaustive investigations the FBI has ever done. These days, the photos Jim is capturing are not of apocalyptic cults or federal building bombings, but rather gravestones in cemeteries, like the Fayetteville National Cemetery, as well as the Confederate Cemetery in East Fayetteville. I had been here for over 30 years and was, was not aware of the Confederate Cemetery, which is one of the most tranquil and serene places in Fayetteville. It's just a, a beautiful place. Uh, sadly, uh, as a result of the two battles fought near here, there's a um, the predominance of the, the around 500 graves. They're all unmarked. The ones that are marked are people that died after the Civil War and years later. I'm going to pull it up here just to remind myself. As I look at your information here on Find a Grave, 8,974 photos you've taken. Um, you've added memorials for 1,377 people as of the time of our recording. At what point did it become a thing you just started doing all the time? Well, it's just, you know, they're, they're, the cemeteries that are here are just so close. And I like taking the photographs, so it's just something to, to occupy my time and and just enjoy having fun doing it. So, Jim, where are we at? We're in the Fayetteville National Cemetery. And uh, <laughs> as we pulled in here this afternoon, we realized that there's actually a, a, a burial that's happening <laughs> this afternoon as we showed up. Yes, you can... The uh, funeral procession just arrived, and as you can see, looking uh, the flags in the center of the, uh, the the older section is at half mast, which is always done for the when the funeral is going to take place. Yeah, um, let's let's just kind of walk here for a little bit, and and as you come out, um, as you're preparing to take photos, um, what's kind of your process? Do you typically you know, do you keep up with the obituaries to see where someone's being buried? Do you just kind of regularly come out here to look? Well, on occasion, I know of someone that's being buried here due to an obituary. But mostly I just come to see uh, the more recent ones that have just uh, been buried. And uh, the process, uh, as you'll I can. there's a, a temporary marker in this older section over there. And it takes about 45 to 60 days for them to prepare the permanent stone. Mm. So a lot of times I'll take a picture of the temporary and come back later and take pictures of the, the permanent stone. Personally, I've not spent a lot of time in cemeteries. However, in high school, I was a member of the school concert band and played trumpet. During my sophomore, junior, and senior years, 
A fellow trumpeter and I were asked by the local Veterans of Foreign Wars post if we would be willing to play taps at military funerals in the area. And so, a few dozen times, for $15 and a free pork burger back at the VFW hall, we would go to gravesides and play taps as part of the 21-gun salute for military rights. Jim was answering one of my questions at the Fayetteville National Cemetery when... We're looking at one here. This is Clarence Craft. There... Let's get this real quick. With the playing of taps, you can go back to talk about your playing of the taps when. You, yeah, absolutely. This yeah. stone here. Do you find it calming out here? Well, I find most of the places, as I mentioned, are uh, the ones here in Fayetteville are just really tranquil and serene places. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, like right now, the taps just played, but just the calmness and sereneness have returned. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to say if Jim spends much time thinking about the existential element of why he does this sort of work. After his time with the FBI, Jim says he did some freelance private investigative work in northwest Arkansas. And perhaps some of the work he does on Find a Grave scratches that itch as well. Just recently I had a back and forth with a person who lives near Tulsa about uh, a person, there was a mistaken information about him being buried in the National Cemetery in which uh, it was a mistaken identity which we were able to put together and determine that that person was not buried in the National Cemetery but was in a private cemetery in Mountain Home and we uh, were able to identify the person who was from Rogers uh, who was one, uh, a person that was in fact the one that was in the National Cemetery. Oh, wow. So it's just, you know, being able to sometimes solve some mysteries about genealogy and and locations. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead on our show, the pressure of a second novel and optioning a book for a potential movie adaptation. 
wanting to sort of avoid the sophomore slump. So I was mostly just focused on that. I just didn't want to fall flat on my face. <laughs> and then the experience of publishing the book was went way beyond any of my wildest dreams and imagination of, as far as, um, you know, people um, buying it and reading it and loving it and, and all these other things that have sort of come along on the back end of that. So I think all of, and then all of that was happening during the beginning of the pandemic. So I really went into the experience of publishing this book with no expectation of what could possibly happen and a lot of fear of all the terrible things that could happen. So all of it was such a just unexpected and um, still very surreal surprise for me. We hear from Britt Bennett, the author of The Vanishing Half, in about 20 minutes. Do you love listening to Ozarks at Large? From local news to artist interviews and everything in between, the news team at KUAF provides listeners with a lot of information. But what if you could test your listening skills with a fun, daily word-based puzzle? If that sounds like something you might like to try, you can visit newsword.org slash KUAF to attempt today's puzzle. But be warned, you might end up discovering your next obsession. That's newsword.org slash KUAF. Happy puzzling. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Good Wednesday. For many folks in the podcast world, Jody Avergan is a household name. You've heard him on the 538 Politics podcast, 30 for 30, and he's been behind the scenes as a producer or story editor on many others. In 2023, Jody partnered with the TED Audio Collective, as in TED Talks, to make a new show called Good Sport. We start our conversation with Jody's entry into the audio world. The real start was I had made films for, you know, through college and sort of coming out of college thought I was going to be making films. And then I had this moment where I realized that the audio in my films was awful. And I thought, well, who knows how to make stuff sound better? You know, who can teach me about how to make the audio in my films sound better in my documentaries? And so I said, well, let me talk to some radio folks and try some radio and sort of get better at that. I mean, I'd always loved sort of ambitious radio and radio reporting. But I, that that was a sort of an original impetus, and then I had this moment where I was like, "Oh, I think I think I like this medium better than film," and so I just started diving into that. But then, yeah, I came up in, in a local public radio station, and then I ended up at WNYC, which is the local public radio station, you know, in New York City. And I produced a daily talk show for a long time, and then I bounced around. And you know, I'm of this micro generation where podcasting really sort of started to take off at this moment, and so a lot of folks. There were these waves of folks going from public radio into podcasting, but I appreciated you just using the word radio at the beginning because I just think of it all as radio. You know, I think that's the easiest word um, in terms of trying to capture what we're trying to do here, which is just make make stuff that's enjoyable to listen to. Yeah, what did you find more enjoyable about radio compared to documentary <laughs> film? Well, man, I've got to, you know, I, we could do this for 45 minutes. Uh, you want to hear my whole TED Talk thing? No, um, look, <laughs> the, the basic thing is this. I mean, I think that radio is is a collaboration between the person making it and the person listening. And that, you know, the best experience of listening to something is one in which you as the listener kind of have to do a little work and you kind of have to complete the picture. Um, sometimes literally, right? When you're listening to something and someone's describing something, you you draw a picture in your head, right? You imagine what it looks like. Um, whereas in a film, you know, everything's sort of presented for you. All the sort of elements are there for you. And so I just think there's this in, inherent, people use that word intimate all the time, right? With radio. But it really is, I think, 
in that kind of collaboration, in that sort of we're working in this together, there's a real spirit there that I that I really love. And then the other one is, you know, Brian Lehrer, who I worked with in, here at WMIC, who I think is the best radio host in the business. You know, he always talked about we're the only medium that people can do while they're brushing their teeth, right? Like radio just works its way into the nooks and crannies of your life in a way that other mediums don't. In fact, in a way that other mediums like that's the golden ticket, right? To have something be part of your routine, have something be kind of like linked to the other parts of your life, like TV shows and books and magazines and everything else. Like, like they work so hard and radio kind of starts there, right? You're already, you're doing it while you're doing the other things in your life by definition almost. And I think that that's just sort of adds to the magic of it. Yeah, I was really bummed because my AirPods weren't syncing right to my headphones as I was riding my bike uh-huh. here this morning, and I lost out on like 15 good minutes of, of podcast time, and and it was kind of a buzzkill of a morning. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, there, you know, I do that too. I listen while I'm working out or whatever, but then you get to sort of talk about things that I love to think about and I think are special. It's like, you, you, you don't just get the intimacy of listening to something, you also get it combined with the endorphins that are that are rushing into your head while you're on a bike or you're working out and it's like, oh man, there it's magic. You yeah. Know? And so I actually when I've when I've um edited shows, you know, and I edited you know, I was a, a lot of what I do is editing shows. And I often will listen to like rough cuts when I'm working out. And I've sometimes had to remind myself like oh, I think this is really good because I just like ran a bunch of sprints and I'm like in this great glowy place and I kind of have to go back sometimes and later and listen and, and listen a little more critically and actually yeah. give some notes. Uh, <laughs> you have to caution against that. Two of the things that I think people are probably most familiar with your work is with uh, the 538 podcast and with 30 for 30. And I think both of those are a very good indication of how podcasting and audio can really take what we think of a norm when it comes to like political reporting or political shows and how 538's political podcast didn't really sound like your stereotypical politics show. And I think the same is true for 30 for 30. When people think of like sports documentaries, the way that 30 for 30 did it was not exactly what you're used to seeing on like ESPN or Fox Sports. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, again, kind of going back to this idea that like with radio, you kind of have to depend on the audience to do a little bit of the legwork in this process, too. Did you find some of that when you were working on those shows? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I certainly did those shows around the same time. And there's definitely like a common DNA and sensibility in some sense. But, you know, they're very different. Right? One, one, one was a conversation show about politics and the other were these sort of documentaries you know, sort of really heavily crafted, put together over months and months and months, if not years. But yeah, they both in their way, I think, tried to capture some of the stuff we're we're talking about. I mean, one of the things I think about with the 538 podcast is it is, well, first off, you know, 538, I think, can come off as a very wonky site. And, you know, I think a lot of times, and then moreover, I think, people read it as a site where it's like, oh, we're going to give you like a definitive number, you know, that's going to like sum everything up in one thing. And, you know, I think when you work at 538, you kind of realize like, no, actually sort of the really the site is about trying to like organize some very messy thinking around politics and that maybe trying to be a little more rigorous is the way to approach it. But really, it's not about like definitiveness. It's about giving yourself guidelines through which to kind of try and understand a very complicated thing, which is an election or our modern politics. But the podcast was such a natural fit for that because it's just like, 
I mean, I've, I've, I've thought this for a long time. I think podcasts are the best place to be uncertain, right? And it's just like, you can do something in, in audio that is much harder in the written word, right? You write something, it has a period at the end of it and it just lives there forever and it feels definitive. Whereas in audio, like you can show a little skepticism in your voice. You can like go down a path and just sort of float an idea. And for a site like 538, which people really kind of overcorrected for and thought, oh gosh, this is all about certainty. The fact that the podcast really lived in uncertainty and in chemistry and in kind of all the sort of ways that we just as a crew got along with each other, um, I thought it added a lot to the site. The other thing I've thought about with the 538 podcast, there was one moment um, on that show where Micah, one of the co-hosts on the show, asked listeners, he was like, out of curiosity, does, does anyone listening to this show right now not like politics and we got like dozens and dozens of emails from people and i mean this is a wonky sh show right yeah this isn't this isn't a podcast you just happen upon well correct but we got so many emails from people being like yeah i just i like the vibes i like being in this space with you you have good chemistry and it's just such a good reminder that like at the end of the day like that is going to be the thing that gets people to come back is like does this feel like a, a good space for me do i like being in this space yes i'm going to learn something along the way but, you know, it's like you, we, we just keep relearning these fundamental lessons over and over and over. And, like, chemistry is, is huge. And that was a big, you know, that was as much a part of that show as anything else. So your new podcast is called Good Sport. It's put on by Ted Audio Collective. Uh, tell me a little bit about how the relationship came between you and Ted to bring this show to fruition. Yeah, I mean, the TED folks reached out to me and said, you know, they are trying to do more. I think a lot of people know the TED Talks and they know that there's some podcasts that are built around TED Talks. They're trying to push into some more narrative shows and some more kind of, you know, like some more storytelling. And so they reached out and said, we've always wanted to do sports stuff. We feel like, you know, we have the ability to put something together. Are you curious, you know, are you interested in maybe hosting? And I do a bunch of work. I do hosting and editing and producing. And, you know, I was excited to just sort of take this on as a, as a hosting gig and they have a great team of producers that they work with and I know them and so I knew like oh this would be fun to to work with some producers who I really admire when I asked kind of what what do you think the show is about what's your idea in terms of what you know what this could be they were like oh you know ideas <laughs> we're like we're Ted you know ideas I was like oh interesting that narrows it down yeah exactly but you know I give them credit like I mean a I think there was just a level of trust there that look we'll mm. figure this out part of the joy here is that we're going to figure something out but for me personally you know coming off 30 for 30 which is obviously a sports show as well but that show is those are historical documentaries they're about a specific story and the whole philosophy there at that show was like let's pick a story and kind of get out of the way. Let's just tell it from A to B to C, you know, give it a little logic, obviously do some interviews, but it's not super voicey. All the ideas and all the themes ideally are sort of embedded within the story itself. And I felt that show worked best when it was really just kind of like the host was really there to just sort of give it logic and move it along. But the story, it was all about the story. And so to have a project that was much more about ideas and starting from kind of what is something I'm curious about or what is a big theme that I feel like matters and then we work into it from there um, I actually found that really satisfying and kind of very different from some of the other stuff and so you know that's and it's frankly been different from a lot of the stuff I've done in my career where I've tended to not be super voicey necessarily and 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 in this in this project I've just kind of found myself opening up a little bit more and doing some more writing and just kind of like offering my perspective a little bit more than I have in previous projects. And so that's been very satisfying. 
you got your start in public radio. I'm a public radio journalist here. And I think there's this there's this idea that it's hard in public radio to talk about sports because <laughs> you assume you assume no one follows sports, no one pays attention to sports. What do you think is seen as a challenge to tell sports stories to folks who don't follow sports? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I certainly felt it too, like coming in when I was in public radio and I would like run the uh, March Madness bracket. People would look at me <laughs> like, what, what is going on here? Like, who is this strange creature who cares about sports? You know, and I'm not like a sports nut. I mean, I grew you know, I played sports. And as I say in the podcast, we sort of dip between the lessons from playing sports and the lessons from just observing sports and being a fan, you know, but I feel like it's all the same world. And I, you know, I feel like over the course of making this series, we've, Obviously, each episode looks into one specific question and it kind of like tries to answer a specific question in sports that maybe has a bigger lesson for the rest of the world or for ourselves. But over the course of the series, I think we've ended up hopefully making some sort of defense of sports as a really good lens through which to understand the world. And that's that's really it. You know, and I say this in the first episode, but like sports has been the place where I've learned many of the biggest lessons in my life. It's not the only place, but I think it should be understood and accepted that like this is a really important sphere through which, you know, the world can tell itself stories and understand and organize itself and learn lessons and so forth. And, and you know, you get like, I think you were referring to this, you get people who are kind of like, no, I'm just not like, just dismiss it out of hand. And I'm like, people don't do that about music or film or books like people don't just say like no i don't think music matters like you may not (laughs) you know think that music is the most important thing in the world for you but you don't just sort of like ignore it as a sphere Mm -hmm. so you know i'm not like trying to shame people into watching sports or whatever but i think if we can sort of acknowledge through this through this project that like there's a lot of lessons here and that the world of sports offers this really great platform through which to kind of like observe a bunch of dynamics that do teach us something about the rest of the world and ourselves you know that's really that's really what we're we're trying to be up to in a larger sense i wonder if there's some intentionality in the first episode of the show the the two sports that we hear the most about are ultimate frisbee and table <laughs> tennis like two sports that we don't necessarily you know think of as like you know your average american sports fan is going to be you know really up to yeah. speed on table tennis and frisbee right yeah, well, you know, the Frisbee thing is just, I mean, that happens to be the sport that I kind of like fell into and, and was like the main sport. And I say this in the first step, you know, we kind of just, I, I'm talking about Ultimate Frisbee in this series much more than I have in anything else. But, you know, I am sort of understanding of how in the public imagination for a lot of people, they're like, not a real sport, like what's going on here. But, you know, it is what it is. That's the place where I kind of, you know, I think, I don't know if I say this in the first episode, but it's like, as seriously as you can take something that's as seriously as I've took that for my 20s and 30s and so it is what it is that's where I learned my lessons the table tennis thing is interesting just because I mean I do think we wanted to highlight all sorts of different sports throughout this series so we talk about table tennis we talk about biathlon we also interview Steph Curry you know like we talk about a bunch of different (laughs) you know sports Um, but in this first episode I mean 
you know, what we were looking, what we're looking at is this idea of, of hotbeds and these little pockets of the country that produce a particular kind of athlete. And so we thought about going to like, oh, there's a high school in North, in, in Florida that produces really great wide receivers. We thought about doing something there. Or we thought about swimmers in Palo Alto or, you know, there's this interesting fa- thing with like quarterbacks in the NFL where a lot of them are coming from Texas and now a lot of them are coming from California. We landed on table tennis just because it really is this remarkable pocket where over the last 15, 20 years, years, like this one community center in Milpitas, California has started to produce a table tennis Olympian one after another. And so it's this great little test lab to go and and look and say, what's, you know, what's going on here? And what does it teach us about nurturing talent, giving people opportunity and all these kind of larger things that we get into? Yeah. And, and one of the, I think one of the most interesting parts of that conversation that I really liked was how brutally honest the coach was that like mm-hmm. his own son like didn't make the cut right yeah i found that really fascinating yeah and and this idea that like it's okay to be good at things but you know to to be able to see that like okay you know like we did our best but it's it's not just about being in a nurturing environment that there is still some like raw talent that's uh that's needed there right for sure. And I mean, like most things and, and, you know, talk about sports reflecting life, it is just very complicated and messy. But, you know, I think that one of the things you can learn about a place like Milpitas, California and the table tennis factory there is that it has set up a system that is not um, just who has the raw talent and we're going to just focus on those two people from the beginning and we're going to do everything we can to kind of like um, turn them into Olympians. It's actually... I think a system that is very understanding that people take different paths to greatness and it might take one person longer than someone else. And one person may need, you know, financial support. One person may need emotional support. One person may need to just have fun for a couple of years and then blossom. You know, uh, we talk in that episode about how the mental side of it is often the difference between a great, great player and a just very good player. And that stuff, you know, we're talking about 10, 12, 13 year olds, like, we're all figuring out the mental side of everything in those years. And so it's not going to be just like, look at this one person and say, you're the one and invest in. And so, you know, this, the, this table tennis factory is really built on the, the, the Rajul, the guy who runs it, you know, talks about volume. He says that the real key is to just bring as many people in as possible and kind of keep the door open. You know, I like this notion of like, how often is, is a coach or a teacher or someone just sticking their foot in the door before it closes on someone and just saying, let's keep this a little more, let's keep this a little open for a little longer and see if someone will walk through it. And ultimately the people who do walk through it and become Olympians, I mean, they have a you know next level of talent, but you just may not see that and it may not click at exactly the right time. And so how can we just be as expansive and nurturing as possible? That's really kind of what the episode is about. Tell me a little bit about what we can expect from the rest of the season. A lot of the episodes, like I said, start with these kind of curiosities that I've had or our team had about sports. And so, you know, we do an episode about why does it feel like every time a new stadium gets built, everyone is angry you know, and people just feel fleeced or people feel like there's bad feelings or whatever. It turns out, well, it's because those stadium deals kind of tend to reflect all the things that are messy and complicated and lead to bad feelings about local democracy, right? And like the way that we do anything in a city or a town, you know, and try to make 
decisions about what where we're going to spend our money and what our priorities are um so i really love that episode we do an episode about you know the zone and like the mental side of the game which is something i think about a lot and i've worked on a lot that's the one where we talk to steph curry if you're going to talk to anyone about what it's like to be in the zone (laughs) i think he's the one to talk to but you know what i learned there is really like the zone is almost some people call it flow state you know this kind of thing where like your brain kind of turns off and you're just sort of performing it's this catch-22 where it's like the kind of the moment that you start to think about being in the zone, by definition, it's gone, right? And so there are all sorts of other ways to approach the zone. And and I think a lot of the smartest people who, who, who work on this stuff talk about mental resiliency much more than being in the zone. And if you can sort of create these little skills for yourself where you have the ability to refocus when that slips, that's just as important as kind of chasing this uh, very undefinable thing of being in the zone uh we have an episode about how sports talk and political talk really reflect each other and kind of how this thing that i've noticed and part of it was through covering the elections of 538 where like it seems like the way we talk to each other in politics really has a a lot feels a lot like how we talk to each other in sports for better and worse often for worse um and so we kind of get into that and how there's an actual history there between sort of political media and sports media floating back and forth I'm really curious about the sports debate show episode. I I spent a summer working producing a local ESPN affiliate talk show. They had like a three hour talk show every afternoon. And one of the things that really fascinates me about and, and obviously, you know, sports radio is a little bit different than like what we see on ESPN. But like from the radio side, I'm always intrigued because it feels like I coined this phrase and I told my news director this phrase and he really loved it. This conveyor belt of hypotheticals. Yeah. You really see this this thing where like the further along you go, you're like six you're like six levels deep on this hypothetical and it's like well, we're assuming that this college recruit is even going to come to our school, like, yeah. and and we're building like four different like zone defenses based around whether or not <laughs> this guy, you know, and like he also has a chance to go to Duke or Kentucky or you know, so just this idea of like this like conveyor belt of hypotheticals just really intrigues me with sports talk radio, um, and just like ESPN too, but it's just like. Well, hold on. Like we're getting really far down this road that like we don't even know if anything close to this is going to happen. There's a couple things going on there, and I love that. I love that phrase. But you know, one of it is just that, like by nature of especially radio, like your job when you're on and not public radio, right? We're talking about commercial radio here. Mm-hmm. But like your job when you're on commercial radio is basically to keep people listening across the ad break. Yeah. Like, and and a lot of radio hosts have made a really good living not necessarily on the backs of like their opinion or their insight, but really on the backs of like, can I just keep this ball in the air? You know, like that game you play where you just like keep a balloon in the air for as long. It's like, can I just keep spinning interest and level? And like there, you, sometimes you listen to these shows and um, I'm talking to a radio guy, so you know, but like the forward promote, right? Mm-hmm. Coming up is this, coming up is this. That's a tactic to get people to just keep listening, right? Mm-hmm. And you, sometimes you listen, you're like, this is 90% forward promote like there's no content here it's just talking about what's coming up because all you're doing is just sort of spinning and churning in the way that you're (laughs) describing and hypotheticals are a great way to do that you just keep people's minds active there's a good side to that too right i mean that's how we talk that's how we communicate that's a great style of talking i do that when i'm out with my friends at the bar you know but there's also just a downside there too which i think if we talk about how it kind of has infiltrated other parts of our you know it's like this where's the substance right and so many times you you look at political talk, especially modern political talk, and you're like, oh, you're doing this. All you're doing is just 
pressing the emotional button in your audience over and over and over and hypotheticals and sort of speculation and anger and divisiveness are a really great way to do that. But like what's actually at the heart of this? What is the actual concrete idea or plan or, you know, and as we say in the episode, like it's one thing to do that in sports. It's just sports, right? Like I think sports is really important. I, I, you know, obviously, but like it's just sports, right? The stakes in politics are much, much higher, much, much different. And so to treat politics like and political talk as if it's a game, as if it's sports talk radio, I think has um, has some real downsides. Or just a way to get you past the next ad break, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of political talk these days it basically is that too, right? I mean, it really is just like to get you to pass the next ad break or to get you to that donate button in the email or whatever. Yeah. Jody Avergan is the host of Good Sport, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Britt Bennett's first two novels, The Mothers and The Vanishing Half, have garnered widespread commercial and critical success. Both have been optioned for television and film. Bennett's most recent novel, The Vanishing Half, is a multi-generational story set in the fictional town of Mallard, Louisiana, that is an examination of race, justice, and identity. Twin sisters Desiree and Stella, light-skinned black women, age into very different lives. Stella chooses to live her life as a white woman. Britt Bennett made a visit to the Fayetteville Public Library last year, and in the lead-up to that visit, she spoke with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums about her books, her writing discipline, and what it's like to have conversations with readers. I mean, I think it's always very surreal because when I set out to write, I never really imagined what would come beyond just finishing a book. <laughs> so to be able to actually finish a book and see it become a real object that people are reading and then to have conversations with people about the book, I think it's still something that feels very surreal, even though I've done this a couple of times already. What I love about The Mothers and The Vanishing Half both is the 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 thought about identity and and the identity that you think you might have as a person or the identity somebody else might think you have, are those themes that you consciously like to, to consider and write about? Yeah, I mean, I think that that identity is always something that is uh, kind of a factor in, in what I'm writing when I think about the world. The, the, the complication in the way that I see myself versus the way my family sees me versus my friends versus stranger, I think all of that is something that's constantly shifting and, and is becoming even more complicated when you think about you know social media and technology and the fact that we have access to so many people's lives and they have access to our lives. and um, So I think that, that the constant shifts within identity and the, and the complexity of it, I think that's something that I've always been interested in writing about 
whether it's the mothers where it is very specifically about the small community or the vanishing half where it's very specifically about this really complicated family. This complicated family, including the daughters, uh, twins. And I have to tell you, I love how you have an, this, this, this sort of omnipresent approach. And Stella, who is the identical twin who chooses to pass as white, we just know her as her. There isn't, in, in my reading, there isn't this broad stroke of what she's doing is wrong. It's just what she's doing and what that means for her. There's no sort of um, judgment there. Yeah, I mean, I think that I I don't like to write from a place of judgment because I think it's uninteresting to the reader <laughs> to feel that the author is, is, you know, sort of pressing a finger on the scale and telling you what to think about somebody. So I knew going into it, I knew that I was writing about a character that was making choices that a lot of readers might have very strong feelings about and, and might end up judging themselves. So I felt like my job as the writer then was to present that um, just with as much complexity as possible and to focus just on who this character is and her particular circumstances instead of trying to make universal statement about whether I believe that what she was doing was right or wrong. It's like being able to kind of meet these people and have your own opinions and feelings about them versus the author telling you what to think. The setting uh, is, a, is a fictional town in Louisiana that is interesting. Is it based on something you've read about or you know about? Yeah, the town is based on uh, towns that my mother told me about. Uh, my mom grew up in Louisiana, so she was the person who kind of sparked the idea of thinking about these very light-skinned communities of, uh, of people um, and thinking about these characters who came from that place. And then when I went to sit down to write the book, I began to do research and, and found you know, historical records of these towns that existed beyond what my mother remembered from growing up there. When you are setting up a community or a family that you're going to be sharing for several hundred pages. What sort of process do you go through in the beginning? It's a very long process of just sort of peeling back layer by layer as I got to know the characters better myself. Because I knew, for example, I knew that I wanted to open with uh, Desiree returning back to Mallard after being gone for a series of years, and she would return with this daughter, and that would cause a lot of gossip and conversation. So I knew that that was where I wanted to begin. But then I had to like set out in the process of getting to know this character. Like where had she been? What had she been up to? Who was this person that she was married to? I had to kind of then sort of figure that out for myself. So I think the process of writing a, a novel really is you have to tell that story to yourself first as the author, and then you have to figure out how to tell it to somebody else. So it really does become just sort of a lot of trial and error as you figure out what you need to know to tell the story. And then sometimes like that's a lot of what revision becomes of figuring out now that you know all this information, what does the reader actually need to know in order to understand the story that's being told? You mentioned when we started this conversation that you hadn't thought much about what it was going to mean besides just writing a book. And this has meant a lot. It's meant uh, attention. It's meant wonderful critical claim. It, it's meant optioning your words for visual medium. What has that been like? I mean, I think all of that has been entirely surreal. I think at the beginning with The Vanishing Half, I was very nervous because it was my second novel. And there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that of wanting to sort of avoid the sophomore slump. 
So I was mostly just focused on that. I just didn't want to fall flat on my face. <laughs> and then the experience of publishing the book was went way beyond any of my wildest dreams and imagination of, as far as, um, you know, people um, buying it and reading it and loving it and, and all these other things that have sort of come along on the back end of that. So I think all of, and then all of that was happening during the beginning of the pandemic. So I really went into the experience of publishing this book with no expectation of what could possibly happen and a lot of fear of all the terrible things that could happen. So all of it was such a just unexpected and um, still very surreal surprise for me. You're a storyteller. You're a novelist. Do you also think about at all, do you put upon yourself perhaps a responsibility as a novelist? You want to make sure that certain topics are addressed in the book or are discussed and maybe topics that for some readers they haven't thought about before? I mean, I think I feel a responsibility um, insofar that I believe that that storytelling matters and that the stories that we tell affect people emotionally and, and psychologically and mentally. And I think that if I didn't believe that it mattered, then I wouldn't do it. So I, I do feel that responsibility there. I think also, like, I'm always just interested, first and foremost, in the people at the center of the story. So with this book, I didn't set out to necessarily be like, oh, I want to write about this topic or that topic. I always began with sort of the characters and the choices that they were making. And then from there, I often found myself into in the middle of some very like thorny topics and questions. But I always began really with, I want to write about these twin sisters who make two very different decisions. And then from there, I kind of find my way in, in various uh, topics that I ended up exploring. Both of your novels also, you know, explore returning, going home or going to, you know, what is a family or, or generational home. And that's, of course, always um, an interesting subject for us and brings its own set of, uh, you know, potential landmines. Yeah, I think so. I think, as you said, both of my books so far have involved a character who's left for a period and had to return back to the home. And even though those homes are very different, um, I'm always interested in, you know, the person that you are when you return to your home and you return to your family as a person who lives uh, pretty far from my family right now, it's always interesting to me. Like whenever I go home, it's it, it's sort of that they see you as the person that they want to do you as. And um, and there are ways in which that can be really comforting and also ways in which that can be really challenging. So I do think that's, that's a theme that, uh, yeah, those first two books do have in common. And finally, I'm always interested in a writing process. Are you someone who, you know, nine to five, this is this is my job. I sit down and I, and I work on it or is your writing schedule uh, a bit more um, flexible? I do try to be pretty uh, sort of regimented with it because I, I do think of writing often almost like going to the gym where when you stop going, it's so hard to get back into doing it again. So it's easier for me if I sit down every day and I put in some work, which I think just showing up takes you a pretty long way. So I do try to be pretty regimented scheduled. I have an office that I work out of. Um, I'm trying to, uh, yeah, create uh, a schedule and and be disciplined about it just because to me that's the way that I'm most productive. And, yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm sort of a visual person. I like to have a big whiteboard where I can write notes or outline or anything like that. Um, And I think, yeah, I think also just the process of getting out of the house, having like a pretty short commute, um, to my office. I think all of that has been really helpful as well, just to kind of, I don't, I don't know, I find like walking and, and movement to be creatively invigorating and also just creates 
a little bit of a distance from your sort of home life, your work life. So all of that, those are all the ways that I've tried to just create, uh, I guess, sort of crystallize a process around my writing where it's not just haphazard, where I try to actually treat it like a job and treat it like, um, treat it like something that I am taking seriously and not sort of, um, that I'm not only just doing what I feel like it, but I'm t- something that I try to show up for every day. Britt Bennett is the author of The Vanishing Half. She spoke with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Callums last year. Hi, I'm Emerson Alexander with The Listening Lab. As we come to the end of the year, we wanted to share with you some of the holiday stories that we've heard throughout the year here in The Listening Lab. But I have this really special memory. When I was in college, I had told, I had shown this poem to my friend Travis. He'd shown up at my dorm room one day and he was like get in my car we're gonna go do a thing and he'd brought all these christmas ornaments and we'd gone to a tree that was this little tree outside the chemistry building and we decorated it um and that felt so precious and meaningful to me um that we got to like almost live out the poem in a particular way so I think about Travis, who is not a person I talk to often, um, but I really hold this special memory. Travis was always this person who was interested in kind of living out art or living out beauty in an interesting way. Um, and it makes me think of being young and engaging with the world in kind of a magical way. Little Tree by E.E. E. Cummings. Little tree, little silent Christmas tree, you are so little, you are more like a flower. Who found you in the green forest, and were you very sorry to come away? See, I will comfort you because you smell so sweetly. I will kiss your cool bark and hug you safe and tight, just as your mother would, only Don't be afraid. Look, the spangles that sleep all the year in a dark box, dreaming of being taken out and allowed to shine. The balls, the chains, red and gold, the fluffy threads. Put up your little arms, and I'll give them all to you to hold. Every finger shall have its ring, and there won't be a single place dark or unhappy. Then when you're quite dressed, you'll stand in the window for everyone to see, and how they'll stare. Oh, but you'll be very proud, and my little sister and I will take hands, and looking up at our beautiful tree, we'll dance and sing Noel Noel. For me, it was probably uh, Christmases in California. We had this little apartment, and we would cram probably like 40 people in there, my aunts would come and like they'd bring me gifts and stuff and uh, I would always be the one that would start the dance. One of my other fondest memories was that my dad would dress up as Santa Claus and uh, my dad looked nothing like Santa Claus (laughs) and he would just go get some pillows, stuff them underneath his sweater, uh, make some like really cheap red hat and then uh, glue cotton balls on his on his (laughs) face so it was like we had like a ghetto Santa coming here, yeah, you know? Yeah. And uh, for me, that was, I think that's probably the fondest memory I have in my life so far. 
because you know at that time even though you're poor and everything it's like the most happiest moment in your life because i have my entire family i gotta say that my first time going to jalisco was just jalisco is beautiful it rains every day <laughs> it's in the mountains it's it's just it's gorgeous you know um they don't have back walls like my, my grandma's house isn't closed all the way it's just open yeah. And, you know, I got to meet all these tios and tias and there's a family tree up there, you know, you got to see actually like your roots, you know, and it's just beautiful. And mm. just as, like you said, like you don't have as many worries. I yeah. think that's, that's one of the good feelings is like just living life and taking naps during the day and waking up and there's food ready and everything's made fresh, you know, from tamarindo, like, you know, anything to, you know, the tortillas, everything. Holidays were a little weird uh, for me growing up because my family's 50-50 Jewish and Christian. So uh, I'd always do Hanukkah with my mom's family, Christmas with my dad's family. Okay. You know, it was interesting to sort of get a sense of two traditions growing up and sort of the ways my family made that work. Yeah. Do you have a funny Christmas story or Hanukkah? Um, yeah, you know, pretty recent from 2021. Um, there we go. It was we did a, a Christmas Eve thing at um, my my dad's parents' house, and uh, you know we we did like a last minute liquor store run to make <laughs> sure we got enough for everyone, right? Uh, you know, if you've been there, always. Yeah, and so uh, we were checking out, and we saw like this jar of like moonshine pickles like they were pickles but they were in like a moonshine brine and so we were like that's kind of fun we'll get them (laughs) and so we got those and they were out and then my grandpa sort of like didn't realize that they were um alcoholic so he ate like they were just pickles he thought they were just pickles and he had like 10 of them (laughs) um and so after everyone left he just went right to bed and the next day was christmas day and so we were at the table and he was like i don't know what i ate yesterday (laughs) but i just passed out last night i never passed out like that before and we were like did you happen to have any of those pickles and he was like oh yeah i had like 10 of them they were great and i was like those (laughs) were alcoholic and he he didn't realize so we all had a a good laugh with him this is december 25th 2021 and um He'd actually end up uh, passing away January 1st oh, of 2022. And so it was really sudden. He just had like a heart attack. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, it was really um, a big loss, but sort of what we were thinking of and sort of just talking about his life, celebrating his life after was like for all of us to sort of share a laugh, have one last Christmas together. Um, it's sort of a really bittersweet thing. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's. I'm glad you guys got to have a good time there, there toward the end. Did you taste the pickles? They were really good. Yeah, they were those good. Pic- I'm not going to lie. Those pickles were great. They were, they were really so good pickles. Today we heard from Irvin Camacho and Elena Ramirez from the District 3 podcast. Michael Vasquez from Elevated Dancing speaking with our own KUAF intern, Josh Marvin, and Julia Paganelli-Marin from B-Bomb, Arkansas, reading the poem Little Tree by E.E. E. Cummings. From everyone here at KUAF and the Listening Lab, We wish you happy holidays, Feliz Navidad, and a happy new year. Thank you. The Listening Lab is made possible by the Walmart Foundation. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Kyle Callums. Emerson Alexander is the Listening Lab coordinator here at KUAF. 
Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Thanks so much for joining us today. More of our favorites coming your way tomorrow. I'll be there with you. Until then, thanks so much for listening and be well.